You're listening to A Stranger Cast at thestranger.com. Hey, it's Wednesday, May 2nd, and I'm Eli Sanders, and this is Blabbermouth, the Stranger podcast in which we talk about what's going on this week. We have a lot to speak about. Donald Trump is being nominated for a Nobel Prize, apparently. We'll look into that. Michelle Wolf's controversial comedy routine at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. We need to talk about that. And then a question, what to do with the Me Too men, men who have been felled by Me Too accusations. Some of them are trying to make a comeback. What do you do? Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Seattle is on the show after that to talk about how the Democrats can win the midterms. And then Katie Herzog has a show recommendation. It's a Rachel Dolezal documentary, if you can believe that. And Rich Smith has a poem to read in rebuttal to Professor Jordan Peterson, who we talked about last week. But to start, me and Dan and Katie are going to dive into the latest with Donald Trump. Thanks to HelloFresh.com for supporting Blabbermouth. Receive $30 off your first week of deliveries when you go to HelloFresh.com and use the offer code BLABBERMOUTH30. Dan Savage, hello. Hey, Eli. Katie Herzog, hello. Hello, Eli. There is a lot going on, as always. Donald Trump's old personal physician is speaking out about getting raided over his records of Trump's uh, Propecia and other things that he was taking. Not raided, robbed. There was no court order. There was no search warrant. Trump goons kicked down a door, basically, and stole medical records, which he is legally obligated to keep and keep in his office under New York state law. They broke in and stole these things. I so want Robert Mueller to pursue a HIPAA violation and take this whole administration down over some HIPAA It's the shit. only thing he's not pursuing if you saw the 49 questions. Well, that's the other thing. So now there are all these questions that have tumbled out that Robert Mueller wants to ask Trump. It's really interesting to try to figure out where exactly these questions came from. Mueller told Trump's lawyers kind of what he wanted to ask – they wrote a bunch of things down. Then someone who, quote unquote, is not one of Trump's lawyers leaked all the questions. And then Donald Trump himself immediately said, this is an outrage. Well, we all know where it came from. It came from inside the White House. It was leaked. It was a planned leak. I'm convinced of it. And then they turn around and condemn the leakers and they try to impugn Mueller when what was leaked to the press was their outline and their summary of the things that Mueller might want to ask the president about. Not Mueller's notes. It was nothing leaked from inside the Mueller investigation. There's been no leaks from inside the Mueller probe. This is Trump lying. Believe it or not, the president of the United States is lying to <laughs> no. us. Reminds me a little bit of when Trump's tax returns, but only one year, showed up in the mail at a convenient moment and with a message in that one year of tax returns that was kind of convenient of Trump for Trump. And also reminds me of the fact, fact that Trump in New York City, when he was younger, would leak all the time about himself under a pseudonym, plant stories that were beneficial to him or maybe not beneficial to him in the press, and then talk about them as Trump afterward. But Donald Trump 
is up for a Nobel Prize this week. Did you hear that, Katie? I did hear that, or I read it. I, no. I don't know that. <laughs> the idiots in his, at his rally chanting Nobel, Nobel is not a Nobel Prize nomination. It's idiots <laughs> at a Trump rally chanting Nobel, Nobel. That is so elitist of you, Dan. There's not one person at that rally who could pick Alfred Nobel out of a lineup <laughs> or even know that there was an Alfred involved. The reason, supposedly, that Trump is up for a Nobel is uh, making peace on the Korean Peninsula. We will see about that so far. Like, a lot of things connected to Trump. It is all show and no substance. Speaking of our love of the show over all the things that are actually important and destroying our planet, the show at the White House Correspondence Dinner, Michelle Wolf's monologue, blew up everyone's minds in D.C., on journalist Twitter, on Fox News. Dan, what's your take on this quote-unquote controversy? Uh, I thought she was fucking hilarious. I thought this was a career-making, brave, ova-e performance. And every comedian should be so lucky as to have the week Michelle Wolf just had. And fuck the idiot assholes in the press uh, and the media who are wringing their hands and claiming that she attacked Sarah Huckabee Sanders for her looks when she did not do any such thing. She attacked no woman for her looks. As she pointed out on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, uh, and I pointed out on my podcast actually earlier um, on Savage Lovecast, she attacked two people for their looks, Chris Christie and Mitch McConnell in her monologue. And there, no one even noticed, no one even commented on the sizeism and the neckism of those attacks on those two gentlemen. <laughs> She also pointed out very uh, slyly in her monologue that there are just some people you're not allowed to make fun of in conservatives' minds. She said Donald Trump is apparently the only pussy you can't mm. grab in this country. Her point is that you can't say anything about Trump or else he's the victim of a, a left-wing mean, mean girl, mean guy conspiracy. Same for Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Yeah, they seem to think that women can't withstand co any comments about their bodies. Like it's going to make all women crumble if you just acknowledge the fact that women have bodies. It seems or wear makeup. To me. I don't know. Well, there or was no makeup. comment on her body. It was about her eyeshadow, and she praised you it. Know, she said a perfect smoky the, eye. The thing that people aren't talking about with this, they're they're all up in arms about the smoky eye thing, but they're not talking about the fact that she also said that Sarah Suckabee Sanders looks like a softball coach. I feel like that's way more denigrating <laughs> and a little bit homophobic. If I'm going to, if I'm going to, uh, I don't. No, I disagree. I don't think she looks like a softball coach. Was the point of that joke? But Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the way she stands at the podium and barks at the reporters and and orders them around is like a coach dividing a class up into teams for a softball game. There was a little like lesbian humor glaze on top of it that, of course, your lesbian feely boppers picked up and most people didn't. <laughs> My gaydar but picked it up. I, I don't think that was about her look. So – Another thing that came back up this week and didn't make as much of a stir, but I feel like should have, was an opinion piece in the New York Times by Katie Baker. She's a writer for BuzzFeed News who looked at the Me Too movement that we had been talking about quite a lot and then it kind of settled down in the public consciousness for a while. But she looked at the Me Too movement and the men who it has felled and the number of them who are trying to plot a comeback, including Charlie Rose, who's plotting a comeback show where he interviews 
people like him who were felled by the Me Too movement. And she says, okay, Charlie Rose's idea is stupid, and please don't. But she also says, what are we going to do with these men? Me Too and the culture as a whole does not have a good answer to that question. Yeah, I think that this is actually a great idea, but I have a qualification. I think that everyone who's on the show should have to recreate their crimes. So Charlie Rose should have to interview all of these people with an open bathrobe. And Louis C.K. <laughs> should have to masturbate during the interviews. You know, I mean, just like put them in a position where they maybe feel a little bit of the humiliation that all of the women that they subjected to their behavior had to feel. If they want to do that, then I will watch it. I don't know if I'll watch the show, actually, but I'll support the show. But that op-ed wasn't just wrestling with the celebrities and the, the high-profile, famous and powerful men who had been taken down by Me Too and lost their positions, rightly so, uh, in most cases. It was also talking about uh, college students who've been uh, bounced out of universities because they ran afoul of campus uh, sexual behavior codes or, or they were accused um, with no adjudication. And a lot of them have found it impossible to get into other schools, to get jobs. They're notorious. And, you know, one guy was quoted like, what am I supposed to do? Kill myself? Commit suicide? And the author was really wrestling with, what do you do? Not with the Charlie Roses, not with the Harvey Weinsteins, but these young men who screwed up. Uh, and are they uh, redeemable? Can they get religion? Can they learn? Can they change? Can they do better? Can they be reformed and, and brought back into society? Or are they the new sex offenders and they're supposed to go live under a bridge somewhere out of sight and die. And it's, it's an important question and for, for a social justice movement that wants to change people's minds and how they behave. You have to allow for people getting it, getting it through their heads, getting religion and doing better, not just stamping scarlet letters on people and exiling them. Yeah, she pointed that out in the piece that on the left, we have this idea that people are redeemable, that drug crime, that the, the right sort of idea of punishing drug criminals is way too draconian and leaves this permanent scar on your life. Um, we have that in terms of felons not being able to vote or get jobs. And yet with this particular genre of crime, we sort of have this, uh, this other idea that because it's sex related, people are irredeemable, which to me seems hypocritical and problematic. Fueled, of course, by, you know, the rage that's built up over centuries and millennia where men could get away with this with absolute impunity. And now there's this massive and overdue shift, and a lot of it is fueled by, by righteous and justifiable rage. But what do you do with these people is, is a legit question. I heard Ronan Farrow – I re-listened to an old um, New Yorker Radio Hour podcast last night with Ronan Farrow, who, of course, is the reporter who broke all the, the, the Weinstein story. And he was saying, I was surprised to hear this, but he was saying we will probably go through a period of overcorrection, which we're in right now because of this long history of these crimes not being serious, being treated seriously and hopefully come out of, in the end on the other side with some some actual due process, some semblance of justice. But right now we might be in the overcorrection period. And it's important to remember that in some of these cases with these college students, it's not about a crime. It's about uh, one person feeling that this was one thing and another person experiencing it very differently and the university coming down on the side of the person who felt victimized or traumatized by the experience. And so there's not a, a crime or a charge or a trial or due process. There's just this conflict. And so, yeah, it's a little grayer than Harvey Weinstein when you get down to 
many of these college-level cases. So take it out of the abstract for a second and put it in, I guess, the hypothetical. Let's, let's say there's a college student who it's not a he said, she said, this, this man, this young man raped someone. And it's clear and it's been adjudicated and he had to leave the college. And he said, okay, I made a mistake after he's served his time or whatever punishment is meted out. And uh, that was wrong. I'm ashamed. I want to try to make amends if I can. But I also want to re-enter society. What does that look like? And what would he have to do? I mean, I think if there's due process, if if there was a rape and it was, you know, prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law and someone actually went to jail, I think that you've served your sentence. I mean, that's what this country is supposed to do. I mean, in an ideal world, we like you you pay your sentence and then you're allowed to reenter society. I mean, not for sex crimes, you know, right. right. Yeah. End up on a sex offender registry that makes it right. impossible for you to get into college, get a job, live in 80, 90 percent of the country. Um yeah, it's not you paid your, you, you know, you did your crime, you paid your time, Beretta stuff. There's a 45-year-old pop culture reference for the kids. It is uh, the scarlet letter and the end of your life. Really, it's a kind of social death sentence. Right, and some register. of these cases that you hear about are like statutory cases when, you know, the age dif- there's a couple of years age difference, but let's say a man happens to be 19 and a girl happens to be 15, and that's all of a sudden the end of your life. There are kids on the sex offender registry because they sexted with each other, because they swapped photographs. There are people on sex offender registries because they publicly urinated or they streaked and they were threatened. One case where a kid streaked at a high school football game was threatened with being put on the sex offender registry and killed himself. Now, there are definitely people on sex offender registries who belong on a sex offender registry, arguably. Predators, uh, deeply demented, sadistic people uh, who have raped and sexually violated and abused and exploited people, but they're all, it, just knowing someone's on a sex offender registry because they've been so abused by prosecutors and courts doesn't tell you what you need to know about that person. I thought that the piece in the New York Times by Katie Baker was really interesting in that it brought up the idea of restorative justice, like, uh, as Katie said, is very popular on the left as a kind of a notion, but... Restorative justice needs, one, the perpetrator to say they're sorry that they did commit this crime, and then, two, the victim to be up for sitting with the perpetrator, going through that process, and forgiving him uh, in in the cases that we're talking about. And that it's really uh, amazing when it works and also really difficult to do. I don't think any of us have the answer for how to uh, apply restorative justice or any other rehabilitative justice in all of these cases. And uh, to her credit, honest, honestly, Katie Baker doesn't either, but she's posed an important question. Uh, Katie, thanks. Yeah, thank you. We're going to talk next to Seattle Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal about the upcoming midterm elections. Seattle listeners, she is in town today. Wednesday, May 2nd, for a public town hall. We'll give you details on it later in the show. Rich, you know, everyone, even you, deserves honest, natural, delicious, healthy food. I feel so cared for when you say stuff like that. It's all about me making you feel cared for. And HelloFresh making you feel 
cared for. HelloFresh makes it so easy to cook delicious, balanced, filling dinners for less than $10 a meal and free shipping. You can enjoy not having to plan dinner, spending money on takeout for an easy night, or worry about gathering ingredients. Choose your delivery day that works for you and pause for weeks when you're out of town. Everything comes pre-measured in labeled meal kits so you know which ingredients go with which recipe and it's delivered right to your door in an insulated, recyclable package. You can choose from three plans, classic, veggie, and family. Rich, I skipped over the family for you and gave you the classic. I'm a family of one. Yes, I had a classic <laughs> meal, and uh, I had uh, some barbecued meatloaf, and it was amazing mm. and filling, and it lasted throughout the week. And my favorite thing about HelloFresh is that they they always just give you a little bit more vinegar, a little bit more panko breadcrumbs than you need, and they say, we tossed in a little extra, and that makes me feel extra cared for. <laughs> I remember you talking about the presto pesto chicken. It was magic, as was the steak. Go to HelloFresh.com and use the code Blabbermouth30 to get $30 off your first week of deliveries. That's HelloFresh.com, offer code Blabbermouth30. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, welcome back to Blabbermouth. Thank you, Eli. Great to be with you as always. It's great to have you here. You have been for a long time helping us and our listeners get our heads around what the hell is going on in Congress and more (laughs) broadly in D.C. And particularly, you have been helping us understand the long and very unfortunate fight over the Dreamers, Mm -hmm. the future of the DACA program, and so on. We talked briefly on a recent show about a recent federal court ruling that says that the Trump administration's policy on DACA uh, can't stand for now. But that case will continue to move through the courts and maybe end up at the Supreme Court. I want to know what is happening right now in Congress, which also can have something to say about the future of the Dreamers. Well, Eli, as you know, um, we have been, as you said, we've been fighting this fight for a long time. We thought we might have leverage to get a permanent solution for the Dreamers, not just the 800,000 that have already attained DACA status, but the 1.8 million that are eligible. Um, As part of the budget negotiations, I will tell you that part of the reason we got so much in the budget for so many of the priorities that we care about is because the Republicans had two priorities, one of which was to make sure there was no DACA deal. Um, the other of which was to have a $657 billion defense budget. Um, and so we still don't have a solution. And what we're now looking at is Jeff Denham, who's a Republican from California, has introduced a resolution that essentially would bring a number of bills to the floor in a process called Queen of the Hill. Whoa. Yes, I know. You can imagine ants kind of <laughs> climbing all over each other to get to the top, and whoever makes it to the top is Queen of the Hill. I kind of imagine that already for yeah, Congress. But I what, know. Okay, so what does Queen of the Hill So basically what it means is um, that there's an agreement around bringing a number of bills on a particular topic to the floor, and whichever one gets 218 votes, it will win. And there's a way to do it so you can jigger the process depending on which one you put first and things like that. But it's a start to say, we are confident that if you were to bring a bipartisan dreamer bill to the floor, that it would pass. Now, part of this agreement includes bringing a horrible bill which we're calling the Goodlatte Bill for Chairman Bob Goodlatte of the Judiciary Committee, that is really a a destruction of the entire immigration system as we know it. We don't think that bill has enough 
votes to pass. Even in the Republican controlled House. Even in the Republican controlled House, because it would really, I mean, everybody, this is why everybody understands 80% of the country still believes that we need immigrants in this country, because people do understand how critical immigrants are to our economy and to our families and our communities. So that would be one of the bills. But the other bills would include the DREAM Act, which is bipartisan, bicameral. It would also include a bill called the Heard Aguilar Bill, um, it's actually not called that. I forget the title, but it's sponsored by Will Hurd and Pete Aguilar. And that also would include a permanent solution for 1.8 million dreamers. And then one other bill that Paul Ryan could devise to his heart's content. So are you saying, because we've been sitting out here looking at the Republican-controlled Congress and saying nothing is going to happen on dreamers until the midterms, but are you saying there's actually a possibility if you cobble together all the Democrats and some open-minded Republicans of passing legislation There's that could no help question them? that we could pass legislation if legislation could come to the floor. The mm. problem is legislation has not been able to come to the floor. Paul Ryan has refused to bring anything to the floor. He basically wants to give Donald Trump a vote in the U.S. House. Well, Donald Trump is president. He doesn't get a vote in the U.S. House. But that's what they're saying is that the bill has to be something that the president would sign, mm. which is ridiculous because mm-hmm. the House crafts legislation. The president has the power to veto it if he doesn't want it to pass, but he doesn't get to craft the legislation That's in the, the House. That's the same abrogation of responsibility that we've seen from Mitch McConnell in the Senate, where he says, well, we won't pass a bill or even bring to the floor a bill to protect Bob Mueller because I know the president will veto it. Correct. And um, that's a whole nother conversation because as the Senate Judiciary Committee was passing that bipartisan legislation to protect Robert Mueller with bipartisan votes, we in the House Judiciary Committee were having a ridiculous hearing with Diamond and Silk um, (laughs) testifying about how Facebook is suppressing conservative views. So So you've met Diamond and Silk because you're on the House Judiciary Committee. I did meet Diamond and Silk. I did not have my picture taken with them as some Republicans did. I did not say from the diocese Steve King of Iowa did that he was tweeting them out and encouraging everybody to fall. I mean, it really, I, when it was my turn to speak on that hearing, I, I just said I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that the House Judiciary Committee that has such important work to do um, is doing not just nothing, but th- turning hearings into political theater and circuses, because so, that's what it felt like. In short, not a Diamond and Silk fan. Uh, no. <laughs> They are very enterprising and entrepreneurial. I mean, really, they are. Um, they're, they're probably, they were probably the smartest people at that table in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that excites me most about the potential outcome of the midterms is that you are on the Judiciary Committee. Yeah. If the Democrats end up controlling the Judiciary Committee, that's where all the talk about uh, impeachment can turn into actual investigations and consequences finally for the Trump administration. But to get there and to get to a reality where we can move DACA bills forward more quickly, the Democrats need to win control of the House. So Rich has been watching really closely all around the country as all these races come up where Democrats are trying to do that. And he's got some questions. I bet you do. Yes. (laughs) Well, as you know, the election of Donald Trump has fired up a bunch of different kinds of people to... um, participate in politics, run for Congress, start groups on their own, indivisible is widespread throughout the country. And this has caused some tension basically between the party and these new candidates. And so 
you've been seeing a lot of reporting out of the intercept and other places about the DCCC and state party systems intervening in these jungle primaries or these top two primaries. Do you think it's a good idea that those party systems intervene this early in these primary competitions? Well, that's a really good question. I think that, you know, um, traditionally what has happened is uh, the DCCC, in my view, has tended to pick a candidate based on how much money they can raise or what their connections are to the party. And what we've seen over and over again in the most recent elections is the wave of candidates who have in some ways, neither of those two things, initially anyway. Candidates do need to be able to raise money. There are different ways to raise money than what has traditionally been the case. As with me, I didn't take any corporate PACs. More and more candidates are saying we're not going to take corporate PAC money, and we're going to raise money through a progressive uh, base uh, of people that really want to fund us with small donations, the Bernie Sanders model. And so I think what's happening now is that a lot of those candidates are actually showing that they can win. Mm -hmm. And related to that, and we'll put a pin in this, there's also what is the message that wins. And I've been doing a lot of work on that through the Progressive Caucus. When the DCCC gets involved, it is useful for a candidate because they bring an endorsement, they bring money, they help raise money, they do all kinds of things. The question is, whose judgment prevails on who the candidate is that's going to be most likely to win in a general election? That's really what this comes down to. Mm -hmm. And um, if the DCCC were intervening in situations, particularly top two primaries, I think are hard because – you do stand a chance with lots of Democratic candidates, as we saw actually in Washington State with the state treasurer's race last time around, where you could have two Republicans make it to the top two, even if Democrats have more votes in the primaries, mm -hmm. right? So if you have five Democrats who run and the vote gets split five ways, two Republicans get 40% of the vote, but it's only split two ways, they actually advance. And that's the fear about what's going to happen in California. That is the fear about what's going to happen in California. So so that is a legitimate concern that not just the DCCC, but everybody has to be thinking about. Um, it could happen in Washington's eighth if more Republicans were to get into that race. That might be a situation like that. But in the current situation, a Democrat is going to get through to the top, top two, and so we don't have to worry about it. So then the question is, when is it appropriate for the DCCC to weigh in, mm -hmm. and what are the factors that make their decision the legitimate, uh, a legitimate intervention? Because right. they do have, just like I endorse a candidate, that I, I endorse my own candidates, they fill out a form, I don't always endorse candidates that the DCCC endorses. Mm -hmm. And then I work to either keep the DCCC from endorsing in that race, or um, I work to help the candidate, even if the DCCC has endorsed in the race. The Progressive PAC, which is another Democratic PAC, which uh -huh. I'm the I'm, I'm a, a first vice chair of that PAC, along with um, Mark Pocan and Raul Grijalva, we endorse candidates as well. And we weigh in, and often we will endorse the progressive candidate. It's just that the DCCC is seen as the official arm of the Democratic Party. So I don't think it's inappropriate that they weigh in mm -hmm. or that they think about these questions. What I think has been problematic is they tend to make decisions on a basis that isn't actually the right basis to make decisions on. And yeah. so that's the question. And I think we have to, we've been doing a lot of work on the inside to keep the DCCC out of certain races. Um, we don't, we're not always successful. And sometimes things are happening that we as members have no idea is happening in our name, which mm -hmm. is also 
deeply problematic. Right. There was the example of Laura Moser in Texas. The DCCC came in. They set up a website that you know um, published opposition on her. That sort of doesn't sound like you're advocating for that kind of intervention. Oh my God, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. It's really it's a it's a big problem, yeah. and you know part of it is really how do we change the mindset of who is capable of winning. Mm-hmm. And um, and so to that end, at, at the Progressive Caucus, um, I launched a project to do polling in 30 swing districts because one of the things that's been troubling to me is when the Democratic Party, kind of the mainstream party or the DCCC says, well, you can't win on progressive ideas mm-hmm. like Medicare for all or you know co- college for all or things like that. And the reality is that's what people used to say to me on immigration, too. And um, it's just not true. But we didn't know it wasn't true because we hadn't really tested it in swing districts. Nobody had ever tested those messages in swing districts. And so we did a poll in 30 swing districts. We did it with uh, Move On, DFA, PCCC, the Roosevelt Institute. And the results were stunning. And actually, The Intercept published an article on that poll as well, because it's an attempt to have people understand that what we call progressive ideas are actually centrist ideas. Mm -hmm. They're ideas that speak to the center of the country. We shouldn't give up this word centrist, because when other people say centrist, they're talking about conservative policies that apply to the top 1% and the wealthiest corporations. We should reclaim that word and say, no, centrist is speaking to the center mm-hmm. and the people who are trying to get into the center. So that's policies like Medicare for all and all of these other things. So we did that polling and we tested um, what has been seen as conventional wisdom about how swing voters and independent voters feel. But at the same time, to get what we call progressive surge voters, mm-hmm. which is our base that hasn't always voted because they're disgusted with politics or they don't believe in the Democratic Party or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, we found that those folks actually want the same things, which is pretty stunning. And that some of the things we've been calling progressive ideas are, are the things that bring swing voters over to us and help increase our message. So, for example, even an infrastructure package, we tested a $2 trillion infrastructure package that invests in green jobs in, you know, and that had language that specifically addressed race and said creates opportunity for white, black, and brown was the language we tested because there's so much out there saying you can't even mention race. We think that's a problem. Mm-hmm. I think that's a problem. And so we tested that. It does better if you mention race than if you don't with independent voters. So um, really important stuff. And I think it's part of how we start to affect what is considered the mainstream Democratic Party and really move a left flank or progressive um, set of ideas into the mainstream, which then will affect who we think of as viable candidates. Mm-hmm. As you were talking, I was, you know, somewhat cynically thinking, well, you know who actually poll tested these messages in swing Bernie districts? Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and, and Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, yeah. I mean, and very successfully in the sense that he grabbed a lot of people who had voted for Obama before and he talked about, you're going to have great health care. Everyone's going to have great health care. He didn't say Medicare for all, but he made a different promise. He talked about a huge infrastructure plan that hasn't come talked through. He talked about trade agreements. He talked about trade agreements. He talked about getting people jobs. And in his terrible 
uh, bigoted way, he said, you know, to uh, minorities and other people who are feeling left out of the economic bargain in this country, uh, you might as well try me because they're not going to help you. Right? right. He played to that kind of cynicism. Well, so- he actually made whiteness a race again, which there's some research on this that's pretty interesting. But he made the concept of whiteness a race again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is I think that's really troubling for our progress on racial equity. And also people like Trump and Bannon and Stephen Miller and on down the list are seeing an opportunity for cynics, manipulators, uh, right wing charlatans who come in and see this uh, group of people, let's call them white men, because that's the the accurate description in the context that I want to ask you about, who are really up for grabs if someone can uh tap into their anger and give them easy answers and kind of claim that they understand what's going on with them. So there was a poll out this week from Reuters and Ipsos that surveyed uh, millennials. So a group that the Democratic Party would like to think is with them. And what it found is between 2016 and 2018, millennials, people age 18 to 34, and particularly white male millennials, are drifting really strongly away from the Democratic Party and into the hands of the Republican Party. They're saying that they're going to vote for a Republican for Congress in the midterms. And what I see in that poll is a kind of statement from a certain segment of young white men that the Democratic Party doesn't have the answer to the problems that I feel. Well, I think there's two things around that. One is other research that shows now more than party, um, political party, people vote on something that we're calling economic sensitivity. Um, This is a basic stat that some of your listeners may not have heard. Whenever I say it, people are like, oh, my God, I had no idea. 67% of Americans don't even have $1,000 in their bank account Mm -hmm. for any kind of an emergency. Mm Um, That means your kid gets sick, you have to take leave from work, and they don't give you paid leave. Um, You have a leak in your roof, your car breaks down. You don't have the money to take care of that, much less thinking about thriving. This is surviving. Thinking about thriving is so far beyond the concept of most people who who are burdened with thousands of dollars of debt whether it's student loan debt, credit card debt, whatever it is, and really worry about wh- how they're going to pay their, their, their bills, their basic bills. So that's what's driving a lot of votes. And if we are not bold in a solution that identifies what the problem is, meaning corporations, the wealthiest individuals, where the system is stacked to support them and not others. And there's lots of examples of that that the Republicans have pushed through, like mm-hmm. the tax cut and the you know stripping of Medicaid um, and the attempts to strip Medicaid and work requirements for Medicaid and food stamps and other things that people need. Um, if we are not willing to be bold, because the other thing our poll tested in a much better way than I'm going to say it, which sounds simplistic, is do people want incremental change or bold change? Mm-hmm. And overwhelmingly, people were like, bold, we want you to rewrite the rules of the economy, Mm -hmm. which is what progressives have been pushing for for quite a while. It's the progressive way of saying drain the swamp. Correct. And and actually, swamp used to be, Nancy Pelosi used to use swamp all the time, but uh, that was successfully taken over by Donald Trump, lied about 
we have more swamp monsters in mm-hmm. a much, much bigger swamp than we've ever had. But um, the reality is Democrats have not done enough on core economic priorities, nor have we done enough to really bolster the constituencies that are so important to our winning. That's labor unions, it's folks of color, it's um, working people, it's uh, poor folks. We have not grasped the seriousness of the economic situation of people, nor have we really been out front on some of the issues around racial equity and racial justice in the way that we should have. I remember pushing for immigration reform in 2001. It took me years to get the Democratic Party to really support that electeds at the top of the, you know, top of the line to support that or to support not discriminating against Muslims. In some ways, Donald Trump, you know, brought us all together on some of these core constitutional concepts, but only when they were so threatened um, because of his presidency and what it meant. So people's attention spans are very fragmented today and very short. Uh, We don't need to energize just young white men to win elections on the left for sure. But at the same time, if this poll is correct and large numbers of young white men are moving over to the Republican side and saying they believe Republicans are actually better on the economy, the Democrats need a quick pitch to get them back. So what's your quick elevator pitch to these young white men who the poll found drifting away? Well, I just want to quickly challenge the premise of the question, because I think we're really missing something if we think it's just about the young white men. I mean, the poll did say that. I I haven't seen the poll, but I, I assume it did. But the reality is the coalition that the Democrats need to put together is wide and broad. And anytime somebody says we should focus on this group, it tends to be white men, whether they're young or old, which really drives me kind of crazy mm-hmm. um, because it was 98% of African-American women who saved us in Alabama. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, women of color and people of color across the country that have saved us in numerous swing district elections. Mm-hmm. So... I want to flip the question and say it's not about those young white men, but it's about what is our core message and to to people who we need to turn out and vote for us. To me, it is Democrats are ready to rewrite the rules of the economy by uh, investing in working people, expanding our ability to care for the most vulnerable and putting forward bold solutions that really advance um, the health and well-being of everybody. That's probably not quite right. I was trying to it's picture my... That's pretty good. But I was trying to picture my poll because we tested some of these messages and we had some really great ones in there. Um, but really, it's like what I've been saying. I, f- I feel like what I've been saying for a long time, which is everybody has the same dream. We want to be able to work 40 hours a week and earn a decent wage to put food on the table, a roof over our heads, send our kids to college and retire with dignity. And that crosses every line. And that's what we should be focusing on. Are there on. some more? I just want to jump in quickly. I know we have to go. Are there some more concrete ideas? I mean, the Republicans are like, we're going to build a wall. Oh, we're yeah, going to we bring have... the coal mining back. The yeah, we, are, we they, have... are they talking about the $15 minimum wage? Are they, yes. Are they, are they I mean, we of... have all of those. But, but yeah. also, I think that's the, our problem is we 
tend to get too focused on like specific policy priorities. But yes, $15 minimum wage, infrastructure investment of $2 trillion, green jobs, really making sure that people can be put back to work to build our economy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, passing immigration reform, which some of those things you don't have to say in every single district, but people understand that they're out there. Yeah. Um, and so, but I, re- I think college is another big one that tests incredibly well. The most important issue right now for voters is healthcare yeah. mm-hmm. um, and the rising costs of healthcare. The cost of pharmaceutical drugs, we should be talking about that every chance we get um, around specific policies. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of like um, we had this uh, great pollster named Anat Schenker who came and spoke to us at the Progressive Caucus. And she said, it's sort of like, you know, those Duncan Hines boxes of brownie mix. And on the cover of the box, what do you see? Uh, the finished cake. Correct. You the see the brownie. finished brownie looking delicious. It almost looks steamy and gooey on the cover. When you open the box and you take out the package inside, what do you see? The ingredients. Well, just a, uh, just a bag. A sort of bunch sad. of brown powder, yeah. sad brown powder <laughs> in a plastic, probably chemical-filled bag. Yeah. Are they selling the brown powder in the chemical-filled bag? No, they're selling the finished brownie, the vision of what we're moving towards. And if we could have not just a message that talks about these policy priorities, but a vision of how you're going to feel when you eat that brownie, when you vote for that Democrat— How are you going to feel? Are you going to feel energized? Are you going to feel like this person is going to listen to you? That is also going back to the beginning of the conversation about the kind of candidates we run. Mm -hmm. Are they authentic? Mm -hmm. Do do they have integrity? Or do you feel like they have integrity? (laughs) Do they connect with you? All I can think of is you're saying this is the lesson, one of the major lessons for me anyway, of 2016, which is that for many, many reasons, including that the right had been working on her for decades, people didn't think Hillary Clinton was authentic. And she had lists of policy positions and great, great, great ideas, but no one read them. They just clued into Trump's idea. Yes, and they didn't believe her. Mm-hmm. They did not believe her because she did come with a lot of baggage, including her husband, who came mm-hmm. before, who passed NAFTA, and the president, who who was there at the time, who was trying to pass uh, TPP. And she was stuck in the middle saying, I don't believe in free trade agreements. <laughs> I, I mean, it just doesn't, it's like, it doesn't compute for anybody, right? Congresswoman Pramila Jaipal, thank you so much for coming by. You're here in Seattle for our listeners in Seattle for another town hall. You've been doing a ton of them with constituents, to your credit, This one is on Wednesday evening, May 2nd at 5.30 p.m. at the Downtown Seattle Public Library, 1000 4th Avenue. If you're in Seattle, you can go talk more to Congresswoman Pramila Jaipal. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks. Rich, I want to introduce you to something. Oh, please go on ahead. It's called Wine. Yeah, I'm interested. (laughs) And it's a wine service called Wink, spelled W-I-N-C. You can't tell, but I'm winking right now at you. (laughs) Wink makes it easy to discover great wine. And because Wink's wine experts select wines matched to your taste, personalized for you, and shipped right to your door, starting at $13 a bottle, you get an experience that there's nothing like. It's like a dating app, but for wine. Yeah. There is really nothing like coming home to a box of delicious Wink wine. 
say the date doesn't work out on the app. And it selected the wine just for you. It's probably, quite literally, the best day of your month. <laughs> My dates with red wine always go well. Just fill out Wink's palette profile quiz, answer simple questions that your average store clerk might not ask, or translate into a recommendation. Questions like, how do you take your coffee? How do you feel about blueberries? How long have you been single, Rich? I miss her. <laughs> then Wink sends wine created to your taste. The more wines you rate, the more personalized your monthly selections. Each month there are new delicious wines like the insanely popular Summer Water Rosé. No membership fees. Skip any month. Cancel any time. Shipping is covered. And if you don't like a bottle they send you, they'll replace it with a bottle you love. No questions asked. Discover great wine today. Go to trywink.com slash blabbermouth. You'll get $20 off your first shipment. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash blabbermouth for $20 off. Trywink.com slash blabbermouth. Dan, hello again. Hey, Eli. And Katie, hello. Hello. You have a show that people should probably check out on Netflix, even though they may have been told that they shouldn't. Yes. So The Racial Divide is a new show on Netflix about Rachel Dolezal. Um, a lot of people have talked about how this show shouldn't have made, how it's centering Rachel Dolezal and continuing to you know, put her in the spotlight when other people, like maybe actual women of color, should have documentaries made about them. That said, I watched it. Um, and it revealed some things about Dolezal that I found very interesting, including her backstory, which has been written about, but I wasn't aware of. Um, and it turns out that the reason she was outed is because her family, her crazy Christian family who thinks the world is 6,000 years old. So they adopted uh, four black children. Rachel was not one of them. And um, and I'm talking about her her parents. So they were really abusive, physically abusive to her and her siblings. And her brother, her biological brother, was accused of sexual assault by her adopted sister. And her adopted sister, as an adult, pressed charges. And after she pressed charges, he hired a private investigator. Rachel was going to testify and say that basically that he also assaulted her. Um, and the, a private investigator looked into her and found out what was going on in Spokane and that she was posing as a black woman. And the private investigator alerted the local media. And so that's why we know about this story, which adds a whole other layer to this. Um, and, you know, it, it really makes you think, like, it doesn't excuse what she did by any means, but is the reason that we're talking about this because an abusive white family used her to get as a get-out-of-jail-free card? It just complicates the whole thing. It's a fascinating documentary. I highly recommend it, even though you might not want to tell your friends that you watched it. So, but if you've managed to listen for a minute and a half and you're like, who is Rachel Dolezal again? She is the white woman in Spokane, Washington, who uh, posed as a black woman and actually rose to the through the ranks of the local NAACP before being outed, as Katie's saying, partly as a result of her cousin, her no, brother's. her brother, her biological brother, who was actually on was on trial at the time for uh, for sexual assault. 
And so with the brother, clearly there's there was a legal process that was involved. But we should say the uh, abuse of from the parents to Rachel and her siblings, that is all alleged by the kids. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's been a legal process there. Yeah. The, but, and the charges were dropped, were eventually dropped against him. So he was not punished for his abuse of this of, of these girls. All right. Alleged. Interesting backstory to the Dolezal case. If you're up for it, it's called. Rachel Divide. I have a quick question because I haven't seen the series. Does she still identify as black? Yeah, she has really doubled down on this. I would say tripled down maybe. She uh-huh. actually now she calls herself transracial and her she's unilluminating when she talks about it. She says like white is a state of mind, race is a social contract. But the documentary does a good job of like really going into the backstory and many maybe explaining some things that she is unable to explain. So once you go black, you don't go back, as they used to say about something else. <laughs> Now we say that about Rachel Dolezal. As much as we'd like her to go back. One of the most read pieces The Stranger has done and a piece that brought Rachel Dolezal to a lot of people's consciousness was called The Heart of Whiteness. It was by Ajoma Oluo, who's been a guest on this show. If you want to know about Rachel Dolezal and you haven't read that, you also need to read that piece. Rich Smith, hello. Hey, Eli, how are you? I'm doing well. We talked last week about Professor Jordan Peterson, who is now your official intellectual and ideological nemesis. <laughs> yes, although I'm beginning to see him as a kind of false prophet that must be taken down. Mm-hmm. Nemesis. B- by the powers of our... Yes, okay, he's a nemesis. And so you wrote a longer take on Professor Peterson on The Stranger's blog this week. People should check it out. It's really good. Mm. A good intellectual takedown of a guy who's saying stuff that's dangerous if you don't know how to parse it. But part of uh, what you are hearing as criticism is, you know, why don't you listen to the voices of young white men more, young white male rich? Yeah. And part of your response, if I hear it right, is why don't you go read a book? Right. Yeah, this is my big thing, is Jordan Peterson is telling people that he shouldn't be reading the postmodernists, he shouldn't be reading any literature that comes out of the ideas of, of postmodernism, and anybody who's saying, don't read this, read my book for twelve ninety nine or whatever, <laughs> read the other shit too. <laughs> and so this, um, and the other sort of thing I don't, like about Jordan Peterson that I'm suspicious of is he's propagating this individualist, hyper-masculine worldview at the expense of social movements, different kinds of feminisms, different kinds of black power movements, etc. And so if anybody has to prop up themselves by putting down other people, this is also something that you should be incredibly suspicious of. And so I thought to bring a poem today by Lucille Clifton um, that takes up uh, Jordan Peterson's individualist mindset, but offers a different kind of conclusion or alternative to slaying dragons or putting other people, putting social movements down. It's a pretty famous poem. It's called, Won't You Celebrate With Me? Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come, celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. 
That poet is Lucille Clifton. Rich, thank you. Thanks, Eli. And that's the show. If you've got something you want to say to Dan Savage, Katie Herzog, Rich Smith, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, or me, call the Blabberphone, 206-302-2063. Or dive on into our Facebook group. It's the Blabbermouth Podcast Facebook group. Again, if you're in Seattle and you want to talk to Congresswoman Jayapal in the flesh, she is at the downtown Seattle Public Library tonight, May 2nd, 5.30 p.m. Thanks to Ahame Filejay Alua for making the music we use on the show each week, and to Nancy Hartunian for bringing our blabbering mouths to your ears. <laughs>